Hi, this is Surya Devi, and welcome to A Voice for Love. I'm a world music artist and healer living on the unceded traditional territories of the Coast Salish people, otherwise known as Vancouver, Canada. We're going to be speaking with leaders and visionaries from around the world to talk more about what it means to be a voice for love. We're going through massive changes on the planet right now, and I believe that what the world needs more than ever are people who are aligned, heart-led, and who can speak from the soul to help usher in even bigger shifts that will elevate us all into a more harmonious and prosperous existence together. Thank you so much for joining us. Hey there, this is Surya. Welcome to A Voice for Love. And I'm so excited to welcome my very special guest, Davey Ward Erickson. Welcome, Davey. Yay, thank you so much for having me. Oh, thank you for coming. I'm so excited. You're Davey, I'm Debbie. <laughs> it's God's yeah, you're party. goddess of the sunshine, right? Surya, yes. isn't that sunshine? That's right. <laughs> yes. And you're just the goddess of all things. Uh, <laughs> oh, the God. divine mother herself, yes. Yes, the divine mother is here herself. So excited. Please tell everyone, a little bit about yourself for anyone who doesn't know you. Yeah, so I'm Davy Ward Erickson, and I am the founder of the Institute of Authentic Tantra Education, which is the first and only government-accredited school for tantric sexual healing in the world. Uh, we also are lineage-based uh, in that we specifically teach the Tibetan Five Element uh, meditations and practices for uh, healing, body, mind, spirit, and sex. Uh, and we have blessing and permission from our Lama, Lama Tashi Dandrup of Kauai Dharma Center to do the work that we do in the world and call it Tantra. So. <laughs> That's very meaningful to me. Um, so yeah, and uh, I'm from Detroit originally, D-Town, um, and um, I come from a history of trauma. And um, fun facts about me, I was a stripper in Detroit when I was between the ages of like 19 and 20 three or something like that. Uh, and then they became a monk of the Ashaya order. And so I was a monk for 10 years uh, before finding the Tibetan five element tantric teachings and become a becoming a Tibetan five element sexual tantrika. So that was me in a nutshell. <laughs> uh, whoa, I didn't know you. I've known you all these years. I never knew you were a monk. Oh yeah, yeah, I was a monk for 10 years. I didn't, I didn't know that part. Wow. And where, where were you living during your, the monk, the monk chronicles? <laughs> yeah, the monk chronicles. I love that. Uh, so I went through my training in North Carolina. So there was an ashram or uh, we called it the campus because it was a monk school, essentially, uh, in, the, in um, uh, Waynesville, North Carolina, in the mountains. Absolutely beautiful. So I was there for a couple of years. Um, and we were very much encouraged when we completed our teacher training to go out into the world and, and teach and share the meditation. So... Uh, once I left the campus, I moved to a little town outside of the campus with some other monks, and we kind of set up a household and were teaching in the area. Uh, then I moved to Oregon and was teaching in that area, and then I moved to Iowa and was teaching there, and then I moved to Hawaii, uh, Kauai, Hawaii, uh, and I chose Kauai because there was a group of monks there. So they were kind of worldwide, right? We were kind of like all over the world, and there'd be these little pockets, and then we'd kind of drop in and land and become part of the community or part of the household and then go to a different area of the planet and do the same thing. So uh, I moved to Kauai because there was a pocket of monks there, um, soft landing. Uh, and then, as I said, after a few years in, in Kauai, uh, I was introduced to Tibetan Five Element Tantra and changed my lineage and tradition and life path. <laughs> You're like, yeah, I'm going to go get some nookie. <laughs> well, for us as monks, we were encouraged to be in relationship. Okay. Uh, I did take a vow, a brahmacharya vow. So brahmacharya mm -hmm. is self-restraint. It's often interpreted as celibacy, but it doesn't always have to be interpreted that way. But uh, there were different stages of, of vows as a monk. And so my first stage of vows, which were novitiate vows, I did take a year-long brahmacharya vow uh, to not have sex. Uh, but then the, uh, the additional levels of vows, which I took novice vows, uh, you could either retain that brahmacharya vow or give it up and I very quickly gave it up I was not interested in being a celibate monk so we were sexually active uh, to the degree that we chose and re intimate relationships were very, very much encouraged in that in that particular tradition because it was considered to be a, a growth point um, you know we can't wait so it's, it's you can be like shiny happy meditating in the mountains on your own but if you can't be an intimate relationship with another human being then how how realized are you actually so relationships were viewed as tools for growth yeah, that's a good point. And I remember, 
Oh gosh, I can't remember his name. He one of I mean, there's so many Rinpoches, as you know, but I know my friend was very connected to a Rinpoche and that was a big thing is that he renounced his monk vows. And I think, yeah. I mean, there's many, but, you know, got in a relationship and that's actually what he teaches about now is that being in a relationship has actually challenged him and uh, fostered his spiritual growth even more than, you know, being in the, in, you know, in, in monastic service all those years, you know, and both are valuable, like not to compare them, but it's true. Like there's such a depth of um, experience that comes from relationship, as you know. Yeah. Well, and, and again, along that, I mean, having been a monk, it's, there's challenges and benefits both with, with being a monk, but it is a path of, of renunciation and removing yourself from the world. Whereas being in relationship and having a family is very much like being in the trenches, so, you know, for, for certain, a certain period of my life, it was very useful to withdraw from the world. The world was very painful for me to be in. I didn't know how to be in it in a healthy way. And so withdrawing from it was a met needs for self-preservation. But then at a certain point, you know, in my, in my growth as a human being and evolution, I needed to come back into the world to be functional and to contribute. That's, you know, that's a, I think a human need for, for many of us on this planet is, is the need for contribution, the need for meaningful work and meaningful contribution. And so for me, I couldn't be a monk and, and function to the degree that I needed to in the world. And that's where, when the path of Tantra, Tibetan Buddhist Tantra, and gave me a method and a vehicle for being able to be in the world and work my spiritual path, but have, have the day-to-day functioning in the relative world be a support and a contribution to spiritual evolution as opposed to a, a detraction from it. Does that make sense? It does, yeah. And um, I'm, just, I'm, I'm even trying to like formulate the right question just because... Um, you know, like this type of work that you do is so important because so many people are so disconnected from their intimacy, from their, from their ability to feel pleasure, like especially women. And I'm just wondering, I'm sure you have so many stories, but I just would love to hear a little bit more about the work you do and how it impacts people or how it's impacted your own life. Because I just, I know it's huge. Like the more I know for myself, like the more that I awaken is just like, wow, we have so much sensory pleasure that's available to us with in our own bodies that so many people never even have a chance to connect with. Yeah, well, there, it, it's such a deep ta- topic and so multifaceted. Um, and so, you know, uh, something that's taught in, in many spiritual traditions in this path of renunciation is it's an aversion to the form, as an aversion to our senses and almost like a instilling fear of, of sensation and feeling and enjoy and instilling fear of pleasure. And that's also part of the patriarch patriarchy, right? And that's the society we live in. We live in a white supremacist patriarchal society. If you want to put a title on it, that's what it is. And the patriarchy teaches us to fear our humanity. And so this path of, of reclamation of, of, what do I want to say? This path of healing, I'll say, is more a path of reclaiming our right to feeling good in our bodies and trusting that pleasure is positive, that pleasure is actually wired into us as human beings to be a healthy, uh, enlightening, and informative experience. So an experience that I, I point to is like when we talk about food, Right? So we naturally, we want to eat food that smells and tastes good, right? And that's, that's, our, that's nature's way through the millennia of, of teaching us what food is good to eat for, for survival and what you should stay away from. So when we were like Neanderthals in the Ice Age, you know, kind of making our way as a human species, that's how we survived was by trusting what was good, what smelled good, what tastes good, what felt good, that brought life. Whereas what smelled bad says, oh, it's rotten, it's full of maggots, oh, that doesn't taste good, I'm going to spit it out. Well, that prevented us from getting sick and dying. So and from an evolutionary standpoint, pleasure is our guiding light to, to light the path to what is going to support life 
And pain is a instructor for what to turn away from or what to no longer engage in. So the mindfuck, if you will, of the patriarchy has been to teach us that pleasure is bad, that pleasure is misleading, and that pleasure is misguiding and something dangerous and something that we need to fear, including the pleasure of our own senses and our own bodies. Talk about gaslighting. Talk about psychological manipulation, because when we're born into this world, like our senses are our antenna, they're how we interact with the external reality. That's how the internal, like God self, figures out how to navigate this crazy 3D reality, right? Is through our sensory uh, experience. And we're born into this world with that being a wholesome, positive joyful thing. And we're taught from this society to distrust that and to disconnect and disassociate from our senses and from our experience of pleasure. And so that fucks us all up. How can, if I am taught from the time I'm a, a, you know, a little child, that the impulses and signals that my body is giving me are something to fear and are something dangerous and something I need to avoid, then I can never trust my God-given wisdom of my own body. Does that make sense? Oh, it makes so much sense. <laughs> awesome. That's a lot of words. So I never know if they actually make sense on when they come out of the mouth. But yeah, so, so pleasure is, as, 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 I talk a lot about pleasure as a pathway, but I mean, pleasure just as this like inherent experience of wholeness and humanity and okayness and positivity and goodness like that is our birthright and that is what our society has taught us to fear and distrust yeah like so many things it's almost like what we were talking about before we before we hit record it's like it's like everything is backwards with these systems. Yeah. Everything is like, you know, they teach us that there's like not enough money and scarcity mentality while hoarding all the money. You know, it's like they teach us not to, not to feel pleasure while abusing sexuality in everywhere throughout industries, children, like everything. Like it's just, it's wild. It's demonic. It's demonic. It's demonic, all, yes. Yeah, I was just like listening to, the, to a new show this morning about like Jeffrey Bezos. So Jeffrey Bezos is the richest man on the planet. And what he said recently is there's, there's no way that he could possibly spend all the money that he's got. So the only way that he can think of to, to start to use some of the resources he has is to shoot himself into space. So to develop, to develop his own space program so that he can use the, you know, however many billions of dollars that he's hoarding. Like, never mind paying your workers a fair wage. Never mind, like, if we had fucking $600 billion or whatever he has, right? Like, the only thing he can think of is to remove himself from the planet, not invest in the planet. I mean, what kind of psychosis is that? So exactly, like, like there is enough wealth on this planet for everybody to live comfortably if we're not psychotic. hundred percent. <laughs> right. I say this all the time. The problem is not, um, it's, it's a resource management issue, which is exactly. why we need to boot all these leaders out. Like this is like, I'm like, he, he said, what? He can't think of anything to do with this money. Um, feed a child, build a school. Like I could make a list. Like I can get rid of that money real fast for you. And it wouldn't yeah, go into my pocket. Yeah, exactly. We're, we're, we're offering ourselves as advisors, Jeffrey Bezos. We will help you spend that money and generate lots of positive karma as a result of it. Because right now you're going to the hell realm. I can tell you right that. I can tell you right now. Oh, they are for sure. They're all going to the, Well, it's funny because I was explaining to my son this word like sentient being, you know, and that's funny because what does that mean? It means feeling like we're sentient because we're feeling. And so it's like that ties back into what you were just saying. Like we've been taught not to, to feel and on so many levels. You know, there's the pleasure level and then there's the intuitive level, you know, we've all been taught to, which is all part of it. Again, if we don't know how to follow those sensations and feelings, or if we believe that they're wrong, then we get all miswired from the get-go and then we have to come, but it's good. It's perfect because this is why we all end up coming to you in the future and saying, Jamie, help, help us learn how to awaken. uh, I mean, oh my gosh, one of my work, one of your workshops that we came to years ago, Marina and I still laugh about it because we were like, you had us booty dancing and like, Oh my gosh, it's so great. 
Yeah, yeah. And I, I often say that we've got like job security. <laughs> That's the good thing about the planet being a mess. It's like, I will be doing this until I die, until my body no longer functions. Yeah. And I love that, that like, yes, we, we, when, we, when we're taught to distrust our natural impulses and our senses, that's our intuition as well. And the intuition, you may know this in, in, in our Buddhist tradition, our intuition is, is Buddha's wisdom. That's God. That's what your intuition is. That is God speaking to you. So listen, right? And it's, and it's one of the greatest crimes, in my opinion, that we've been taught in the society to dismiss it, to discard it, and to disconnect from it. Because it is literally the voice of God that is the birthright of every human being. And it is built into us, and we are born with it. Right, but they don't want us to hear the voice of God because if we hear the voice of God or the voice of the divine, then we know that we all have inherent power and then we won't be able to be controlled anymore, which is so much of the agenda of this whole, you know, white supremacist patriarchal society is always about control. So if you have a bunch of people that follow their intuition, then they would all be like, hey, something's off here. But this is the reason why so many people don't and can't even see the reality of what is, like what we were talking about earlier, like the actual reality. People are in denial still that it exists like it's just wild <laughs> yeah it's like uh, i think that the our llama calls earth uh the reject planet which is a terrible terminology because i earth is beautiful like i don't hating on earth it's not her fault <laughs> not her fault at all she's taking right. the brunt from all of this exactly but i think what they mean by that is that that a, a large percentage of the humans on this planet are, are not evolved and may not don't have the capacity or the propensity for evolution and then those of us who are on a very active path of evolution and healing and realization, we're like, can you please get off our fucking planet? <laughs> like, go home. <laughs> right? Go away. Bye now. You're, you're, you're shitting in the sandbox. Can you go home now, please? <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> and that's actually really funny because that's like my I didn't teach him this I swear but that's like literally what my you know I've been teaching my son about like you know the good guys and the bad guys and all this kind of stuff and he's like get those bad guys off the planet they've got to get off of here I'm like that's right buddy I'm like that's exactly what needs to happen well, I mean, they're destroying it. And at a certain point, it's like they're a danger to themselves and others. Like, I mean, we've passed that point a long time ago, but like, that's kind of the wake up call. It's like, okay, our time here is limited. Like there is an expiry date on here. If you've got grandkids, you should be very worried about them um, at this point. So, you know, they've, they're a danger to themselves and others, and they need to be removed from the environment for everyone's safety. That's just... <laughs> Well, maybe we can get that. Maybe we, if we can get that meeting with Jeff Bezos, we'll get him to like project himself away into space and he can just stay there. Yeah, and leave us all his money. <laughs> leave us the money. We'll, we'll take care of it. Don't worry. We'll dedicate all the merit to you to help you transform your shitty karma. Totally, yeah. We'll try to, we'll try to get you like a free pass out of the hell realm there. But so then yeah. how, does, how does recapturing, like, how does, like, so how does, like, recapturing our pleasure, like, tie into all this? And how did this change your life? Because I know that you moving into this work had, you had, I mean, so many revelations for yourself and you even uncovered, you know, memories of things that you've forgotten about and all these kinds of things. So how has this, like, tapping into this pleasure changed your life? Yeah. So, so number one, being willing to um, be present with the amount of sensation that can be cultivated through tantric sexual yoga practice in and of itself is incredible, right? Because we're, again, we're in the society, we're very conditioned to only allow so much and we have our limit and our cap. So being, having the presence of mind, and this is why meditation is so important when it comes to tantra yoga practice, because it's mind training and it's training our awareness to actually be present and to rest in the moment and observe, not from a detached space, but from a very embodied space and allow whatever's arising to arise. So just being able to be present with that amount of sensation has been revolutionary and transformative in and of itself. What the pleasure seems to do, this is my theory and my observation, and I don't have any like scientific data to point to, but this is just what I've observed in my own practice and the practice of others, is that when we, so pleasure is like lube. <laughs> That's kind of the way I think of it, right? So, so 
when we ex- allow ourselves to relax and we can, we've got the capacity to be present in this pleasure, it allows the autonomic nervous system to come to a nice deep, deep relaxation that keeps deepening and deepening and deepening. And the right and the left hemisphere of the brain, um, whatever, synchronize, and then our brainwave patterns help us move into these really deep altered states of consciousness. So for those of us, you know, you out in the audience, you know, if you think of like really deep, profound sexual experiences, part of what's going on there is that we are in an altered state of consciousness, quite literally, right? So, so pleasure allows the autonomic nervous system to come to a state of rest and relaxation that allows the brain to shift into these different states of awareness and these different states of consciousness and it expands. The other thing that pleasure does is I think of it as like unearthing. So like all of these traumas and wounds that are held in our nervous system and held in the cells of our bodies take this opportunity to arise so that they can be released. The basic understanding is that the body is designed to heal itself. And the fundamental blueprint of the human design is love. And so when we are basking in love, which is bliss, which is pleasure, anything that is out of alignment with that will arise to the surface to be released, to be purified, to be resolved. And so in terms of sexual healing, like pleasure literally is the most profound medicine because of the effect on the physiology, because of the effect on the energy body, and because of the effect on the awareness. When we are approaching orgasm, there is fucking nothing else (laughs) going on in the world. It's like, oh, I was molested when I was three. I got an orgasm on the fucking horizon. I'm going to focus on that. So at the same time as seeing these deep wounds arise, like I'm basking in bliss, so it's a whole different experience than like being in your therapist's office and, you know, the trauma and the pain and the whatever. That's important too. And in order to fully release these things from the body, because it's one thing to talk about an experience, it's another thing to release it from the soma. In order to release it from the soma, again, I would never encourage anyone to do that without pleasure because pleasure creates the sphere of reference. It creates both a both a... I keep doing this because it's like a it's like a field of awareness or a container of awareness, and it's also an anchor at the same time, so you can keep coming back to it. So in my experience of these really like gut-wrenching, horrible fucking experiences I've had in my life, I would be basking in this bliss, and this experience would arise, and I'd look at it and be like, oh, that's so terrible. Oh, but the bliss. Oh, that's so terrible. Oh, but this feels so good. Oh, that's so terrible. Oh my God, I'm coming. (laughs) And And the light of the orgasm would like wash through the energy body. It washes through the brain and causes a complete like reset and rewiring of those neural pathways. Uh, And it just, it facilitates healing from the root to the crown. Wow. Yeah, it really does. I know exactly what you're talking (laughs) about. I'm like, you really does. And I know exactly what you're talking about. And it's true. But that's kind of like, you know, they talk about that, like the yogis talk about this, like how, you know, our true nature is bliss and everything else is illusion, right? So it really is an opportunity. And what I find wild is always like, wow, all of that is like literally inside of us. And like, I don't know about you, but you know, I've had an experience and I think a lot of women are like this because of trauma, because of abuse, because of these things, you know, being very blocked and then opening. And it's like, wow, it's like astounding. And then to think it, it just makes me sad that some people never experience that or that they never have a, and everybody can, of course. And I'm sure you could tell us all about that because, you know, um, I'm sure you've seen many people throughout your, your career and even yourself, like how much transformative capacity is there, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and the thing to keep in mind is slowly, gently. Right. Because, you know, on this journey of healing, there can there can also be that trauma that is that is ingrained in us from society of like having to perform and having to accomplish can speak for myself and what I've seen with my students can compel us to force try to force that healing or try to force digging into those traumas or force the process. And in terms particularly of our sexual healing, and for those of us who are abuse survivors, it's really important to proceed at the rate of your body, mind, and heart. Truly, truly. And it's it's like trying to to force a, a rose to blossom. If you do that, you'll destroy it. 
So patience, as we were talking about earlier, patience with yourself and compassion with yourself and patience with the process is really primary. And a lot of trust. I find that when I, when I have trust and faith, my ability to practice patience increases. So if I have trust that this, this, this painful experience that I'm having will change, by me doing the thing I'm supposed to do, if I have trust that it will change, then I can offer myself a lot more compassion and kindness throughout the process. So, um, so yeah, in terms of, you know, moving through blocks and awakening and healing, uh, one of the primary tenets, in my opinion, is gently, slowly and to work with your body. That's why, that's why somatic healing is so profound because we learn to really attune to and listen to the body. The body is brilliant. The body's Buddha. The body knows. It knows, it knows, it knows. We just need to, our little ego minds need to learn how to listen, right? And so that's the process of somatic healing is coming back home to the body and learning to notice, observe, and listen to the messages that the body is giving us. So that if we are coming up against a block, we get the intuitive signal from the body, mind, spirit to push through that block, that that would actually be regenerative for us. Or some blocks maybe are too big. So instead of pushing through it, I need to just rest here. I just need to pause here and integrate and heal because pushing through would be detrimental. That's the beautiful intelligence that's encoded into us as human beings that we need to do methods to learn how to reclaim. But once we reclaim that, then we practice the methods to continue to deepen and enhance that communication and that intelligence. Wow, that's profound. And it, it, it's, it's like so simple in, in so many ways. Like some of the most powerful things we can do are literally just like sit and breathe, you know, sit exactly. in, in the body, sit in it's, you know, people teach all these techniques and like this thing and that thing. And I'm like, no, just like, so what you can get from just sitting and breathing and the observations you can have in your body and like just observing all the space and take getting out of this, like the ego mind, because again, our conditioning is all we're trained up here, right? Like all of our systems have taught us how to like function from up here and then it's like at a certain point I mean some people if you're lucky enough to have a parent who raised you you know awake but for most of us we hit a certain point in our life and we say this isn't working for me anymore and then that's what sends us on our spiritual path that will lead us wherever we need to go right Yes, yes, exactly, exactly. So it's, it's, you know, when I talk about this, I just, I can see kind of in my mind's, my mind's eye, this, this legacy that's been passed to us through the centuries of, of, of avoidance of our, of our basic humanity and how, how the more complicated shit is like, that's what we're suffering is, is the complication that as you were saying, the simplicity of just being human is profound and is is healthy like god created this world healthy <laughs> like nature is healthy it's like the way shit functions without us getting in the way without our input is actually really healthy and the systems that we've created these very complex convoluted systems have moved us further and further away from the simplicity of our humanity and the simplicity of the environment as it manifests without intrusion, without interruption. Yeah, and I feel like the system is very threatened by a woman in particular in her full expansion of her sexual power. Like that is a big, that is something that the system does not like or want or um, yeah, they're trying to get us to avoid that, right? Yeah, well, and I mean, women in power in general, it's, I mean, again, how many centuries of patriarchy have we been living under, right? And so that power was, yeah, so that power was taken from us for a reason. And it was a global effect, right? It, it, It happened like in, you know, reading about Tibetan Buddhism and stuff like that. Like these motherfuckers were misogynist assholes, like in, you know, 800 AD. I mean, when Buddha was around, you know, Buddha had to give teachings on, on, uh, you know, why it's okay to love women, you know, because people didn't think that women were human, equally human when Buddhism first arose, right? That's the whole thing about Green Tara, why she incarnated, because the belief in Buddhism, Buddhism, shiny, happy humans holding hands, the core belief in that at that time was that in order to be enlightened, you had to have a penis, 
people with vaginas simply could not get enlightened. How, I mean, that's, how is that fucking enlightened thinking to think that an entire half of your population is defective in some way because they have internal erectile tissue instead of external erectile tissue. Like it's just insane. But, but that's the global paradigm that we've been influenced by for thousands of years. And so what I find fascinating is, you know, where did it begin why was our power taken away from us? What was the global event, you know, that that created that 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 flipped the switch, so to speak, where where the emphasis in society moved from a matriarchal, communally more of egalitarian and communally based society to this patriarchal hierarchy that we're still suffering under today? I'm sure people have written books about it, but I, I I'm curious about it from like a spiritual perspective, right? What was the what was the influence that occurred? Well, that is a very interesting question. And of course, like in Europe, I would say it's like the burning times, you know, like the church went around and they persecuted any woman who worked with herbs or practiced natural medicine and men as well. Um, They were all labeled as witches and like thrown, you know, tied like something to their leg and thrown in the water and burned at the stake and stuff. But I saw something very interesting the other day that said um, feminism never like is, is not a concept obviously that came from Africa because actually in Africa, Africa, like the continent of Africa was a very matriarchal like mm-hmm. society. And there were a lot of women leaders and it was only when the Europeans came to Africa that then the, the people in Africa started mimicking that behavior and then treating women poorly. But prior to that, um, you know, obviously Africa is a huge continent with many countries, mm-hmm. but in general, it was a matriarchal society there and that it was the European learned behavior that mm-hmm. influenced them. Yes. It's interesting, and I would say probably again, I'm not, I'm not, I'm like the furthest thing from an academic. I'm a little yogi, right? <laughs> like I read books, but I'm like I'm not, I can't give you dates and all that stuff. But from a little bit that I've read, it seems like you know the south, the indigenous cultures, and many many indigenous cultures around the planet were very were more matriarchal, and yet there is this global event. Like I'm thinking of, like I was saying, Tibetan Buddhism. And, and Buddhism in India. Point. This was pre-colonialism, right? So, what was the what was what was the external event that caused that switch in those societies to move from matriarchy into more of a patriarchal-based society? I don't know. Maybe someone has the answer. Maybe someone in our audience has the answer. But it's something that I find fascinating, especially in terms of this conversation of like, yes, in today's society, you know, the powers that be don't want empowered women. Well, they haven't wanted us around for thousands of years. <laughs> so, what's different now? <laughs> <laughs> right? That is a really interesting thing because as soon as you started talking about Tibet, I was like, wait a second, I, because, you know, obviously there's the colonial influence and all of these things. But then, yeah, these other societies, I, I don't know. And what yeah. was the global event? Why was it this? Well, but what, what do we know about consciousness? What, what we know about consciousness is that, um, you know, the hundredth monkey, right? Like yes. as, you know, people can be influenced by other people on the other side of the world that they never meet. And then they follow these trends because of consciousness, right? There you go. So some kind of patriarchal virus infected the planet. Yeah. (laughs) That's what we're going with. It was a virus. (laughs) <laughs> it was a virus. Well, and it does, I mean, the burning times really stand out. And I, again, I, I'm, I'm like laughing because I'm like, I'm exactly like you. Like, I'm like, I can't remember dates and names and all this kind of stuff. I'm like, but really, no, no, I was just reading it. It was this. And he, like, even if I heard it yesterday, I still forget. I can like lay out the basic points. I feel like that's a very feminine trait though as well. I feel like men are much better at retaining facts and dates. And they're very like, you know, oh, that happened in 2005. I'm like still racking my brain. Like, oh, was that eight years ago? Was it 15? Like, I can't tell the difference, you know? How old was I in 2005? I'm gonna like track back and like okay, yeah. why? And yeah, totally. <laughs> so I think you're right. Yeah, that that's a very like that structure of having to have the you know the bullet points and the check boxes is more part of the the masculine or the patriarchal structure and that kind of fluid like. Let me, t- let me tell you the story. Who the fuck happens? Who cares when it happened? It's the story that's important. <laughs> it could yeah. happen yesterday or a hundred years ago. <laughs> totally. Well, and that there's truth to that too. But so I'm curious, do you think that there is a society then that existed pre all of this that was more sexually liberated? Like, absolutely. Okay. So yeah, we'll- absolutely. I mean, there's evidence of that. So yeah. I did this uh, a course uh, last year, a couple of years ago, on um, uh, the goddesses in uh, manifestations of the goddess in ancient tradition. And she you know, was speaking from an archaeological standpoint, everything began, everything that we currently experience on this planet, all signs, symbols, humans, society, everything, everything began, began, began in Africa. And everything was centered around worship of the pussy. <laughs> <laughs> Because it was life. Mm-hmm. 
period. So everything, all life on this planet, all human life on this planet started in Africa and then spread. And they, they were able to trace symbolism from some of the ancient, uh, the original tantric societies, like in Kashmir, you know, where you think it's just like, you know, Indian people are different than African people. No, those were originally African people that migrated their way over to India and brought their concepts and their symbols and their traditions with them. And those evolved into Indian Tantra. Wow. I didn't know that, but that makes sense. Actually, I remember when I was in India, there's actually a lot of people don't know this, but right in the tip of India, there's actually a group of African people who live there and they live like traditional, like, and they look actually, once you get into South India, you, um, I was traveling there with some African people and they would always come up to us because they couldn't figure out if the, like, if the people from Tanzania and Kenya, if they were South Indian or if they were African because they or if they, if they were from South India, you know, because they look so similar. The hair yeah, is the same. Yeah. Is it the same? See, I didn't know that. Yeah. You know what I find so interesting is so the founder of our lineage, Naguma, was called the Black Dakini because oh. her skin was so dark, it was black. And like she was so like in the text, like she was kind of disregarded as like woman, crazy woman who walks around bones in her hair, but she was a fully realized yogini, a yogini. And I just, and she's a founder of our lineage and our tradition. And she gave the sexual teachings that we use today and that we teach today. And she very specifically told her disciples to only give these teachings, the sexual teachings to one student per generation to ensure that her teachings were not codified into the monastic tradition. Wow. And I just find it so fascinating because again, like I'm just going to keep saying this because this was a huge revelation because I only, I've only ever seen representations of her as this white, like very Asian looking person with white skin. And that's Naguma. This bitch was black. <laughs> she was coal black. And, and she gave these sexual teachings that little high yellow Davy is running around today teaching the world. And I've gotten some significant pushback in which I find really, you know, interesting and, and was painful at the time, but also not surprising. Some pretty severe pushback from white dudes in the traditional Tantra schools that are telling me little, you know, black woman that, you know, you can't call what you do authentic because you're including sex. You know, it totally ignorant of our tradition and our lineage, which these were the sexual teachings and Naguma was like, keep this shit on, the, on lockdown so no one can fuck with it, right? Um, and that we have lineage, we have permission from our Lama to actually share these. So I've just, I've, I've just, I don't know if I'm explaining that clearly, but just the social dynamics of like the white male academic is the gatekeeper of all things that are authentic Tantra. And then we have a black woman saying, actually, I have authentic Tantric sexual teachings and me being um, uh, vilified for that. Oh, well, yeah, I was, I was going to, so she got Jesus, basically she and JC are in the same boat, both of yeah, them being exactly. branded. <laughs> she got Jesified, Jesusified, I don't know how to say it, but like, they're both in the same boat there, like depicted as being, you know, but that is a, I mean, that's a whole thing. It's actually, even this morning, I was just watching Jane Elliott, you know, who was like a white woman from the, I don't, I don't know if she's still alive or not. She would be very old if she was, but she was just saying that literally like, you know, the oldest person in the world is the black woman. And, you know, yeah. the black woman contains a, a type of DNA or there's certain things in like humanity, like the oldest codes of DNA are only found in the black woman, you know? And so it's so interesting that the, um, well, it's not interesting. It's stupid. And it's another function of the white supremacist patriarchy that it's like this fear of, of the black woman, of the persecution of the black woman. Like they're not listening to the black woman, the, the white, you know, the white voice, like trying to shut you down and tell you not to speak. I mean, even the fact that that even happened there. And so this is the thing that like this white supremacy carries over into so many cultures, like it carries into Asia and India as well. You know, these are all functions of society. There are this idea of like, you know, light skin and dark skin. And then the fact that even in the Tibetan tradition. I didn't know this, that they took another, you know, a darker woman. Cause it's interesting in the Hindu pantheon, there's a lot of gods that are, you know, Kali is a darker, um, you know, Krishna is like a dark blue color, but you know, that's a big part of their mythology is that they have this beautiful dark skin, you know? So mm -hmm. I didn't know that in Tibetan that they also whitified <laughs> another, <laughs> Yeah, and they, they did in the iconography that I that I saw when I was first learning, and even just like there's a there's a book called a Naguma Lady of Illusions that's written by a, um, a Sarah Harding, and on the cover is a, a, a white 
like she looks like white Tara, white Asian looking person. And it's Naguma. So I, I was always like, I knew Naguma was the founder of the lineage, but I was like, yeah, whatever, you know, Naguma. And then I saw a picture of this black woman, this black shaman with bones and a skull cup and a rattle sitting naked. And I was like, oh, that's Naguma. Yeah, you're like, oh, yeah. That's Naguma. And she's like, yes, sister, that's Naguma. <laughs> I'm Naguma. <laughs> Not me, but that's what she was saying. Yeah, but that feels so profound that you here you are, like in 2021, carrying on like that's your lineage and your teachings. That feels very, very divine. Yeah. I mean, obviously I'm I'm very light skinned, but based on where I was born and the time I was born, I, I was raised as black, biracial and black. So yeah. Well, and that's in the States. I didn't understand this because in Canada, it's usually, usually in Canada, we say like mixed, but in the States, it's like if you're even, and I, I didn't know this until I was like maybe like an early 20s or late teenager or something like that. I remember meeting an American and he told me like, no, in America, if you, it's like the one drop thing, like mm-hmm. any, any kind of black, like any bit, like you're black. They don't make the designation between mixed or not as much. It's just like, no, you're black, right? Yeah. And, and again, it depends on the time, right? So I was born in 1974. And, um, you know, to put this in context, we just had uh, like June 12th is called Loving Day. And June 12th in 1969 was the date that my parents could legally be married. And it was the date that the U.S. government said that I was allowed to be alive (laughs) under the auspices of a, a, a legal marriage. So before 1969, I, my birth was not legal in, in terms of a marriage. Rape, sure, there's lots of little mulattoes walking around from rape, but in terms of a legally government-honored union, I wasn't allowed to be, that wasn't allowed. So my parents literally were not allowed to marry until 1969, which is when they did marry. And again, putting this into context, when my parents were teenagers, they couldn't drink out of the same water fountain. So that's, that's how recent this is. So I was born in 1974, and that's, you know, five years after interracial marriage became legal in the United States. And so for many of the people that I grew up around, um, I was an abomination. When I lived with, when my parents got divorced and I lived in mostly white neighborhoods and was surrounded by mostly white people, those white people told me very clearly and on numerous occasions that I did not have a right to be alive because I was, well, half-breed, mixed, and at the same time, they also labeled me as black. So I had this experience of being, which is, for me, I find healthy. It's, it's, I'm, I'm biracial and I'm also black because I have experienced both the benefits and the detriments of growing up black in America. But I'm also not just black. Like, obviously, my skin is super light. I have all kinds of light skin privilege. And I grew up with a white mom. So being biracial and black is its own unique experience. It's different than being, you know, Asian biracial. It's different than being South American biracial. Being black biracial in America is its own unique experience. Yeah, it is. I, I, I can imagine it is. And uh, uh, I hope you get to meet my son one day. You guys are so similar. He looks like he could be your kid. If you guys were out together, you guys would be like little twins. You have the same hair and everything. But yeah, well, that's... Anti Davy, yeah, but uh, that's of course I've like wanted to look into, and I've been learning more about this now, just for him to help him in his understanding of his identity. And of course, it's a little different being in in Canada, but you know, in America, that's where all his family is from too. So they're from Texas, and they're very much you know his whole side. His dad's side, they're black, they're blackly black grandma and cousins, everybody. So very interesting. Yet you know, right now at this point, he's here with me, living in this very you know in a white family, but you know our the good thing about Vancouver is it's such a, you know, there's people from everywhere here, so multicultural, you know, every, every, we were just up at the park this morning and he was playing with every, every kind of kid you can imagine up there. So that's great. Okay. So he's not, you know, growing up, hopefully, you know, just thinking he is who he is and kids don't see this, which is so interesting too. They, they don't, you know, they don't, they don't see, they just see each other and they're like, Hey, that's my friend. Let's go play. And there you go. You know, it's they're- not until somebody teaches them. Yeah, they're they're very much taught taught hatred. And and when I was when my parents were still together, um, I went to a very like like hootie tootie kind of kindergarten and first grade and whatever. And our neighborhood, this is like in the eighties, right? 
our neighborhood was very um, rich in terms of ethnic diversity. So we had East Indian people, we had Asian people, we had other black people, we had white people. So it was a very racially diverse or ethnically diverse neighborhood. And that was my early, early years. It wasn't until my parents got divorced and I started going to public school that I started experiencing overt racism from the other kids at school. And so, you know, economics and demographics our demographics that we live of the neighborhoods that we live in are often very much determined by our economics. And so that plays a huge role in, you know, what our, our experiences of racism and prejudice um, coming up in the world. Um, and then let's see, what well, was I say something else about your, your wonderful son, but I can't remember what it is. It'll come back. <laughs> I don't know, but I'm also curious, how did you handle these like white men who are trying to tell you like, what's what did you, <laughs> Like, did you tell them off or did you like, how did you, how did you handle that? Did you just get away from them? Well, this is an interesting thing about, you know, about our cultural conditioning and white supremacy. So again, I'm going to circle back to, you know, imagine being five years old and having the adults in your world that you're reliant upon tell you that you're an abomination and you don't deserve to live. So that was what the message I have been hearing for most of my life. So in terms of feeling like my self-worth and value and confidence, no, there was, there was none of that. Uh, that's part, been part of my healing. That's been, you know, through my sexual healing, I've also healed my, my humanity, my sense of self, my, my experience of my human, my, as my, my experience of myself as a human on this planet has been part of my sexual healing journey. And there's still going to be traces and threads of that very early childhood trauma and conditioning. And so this experience with these, the white male gatekeepers, (laughs) some of you will probably know exactly who I'm speaking of. uh, This occurred just a few years ago. And when it happened, my first instinct was, oh fuck, I'm wrong. Because that's how I was trained. I was trained and we're all trained. All of us who are not born white men are trained that the white male is the authority. And so if I have a white male, a wealthy well-educated white man with a PhD who's got a PhD in fucking Sanskrit or something like that saying, you don't know what you're doing, black woman or woman, period. You know, what you're doing is not authentic. Just like coming down on me, my first response was like, oh, well, he must be right. That was my first response. So I felt fear. (laughs) And so what I did is I reached out to my llama, who's another white man. For support, right? And he's, you know, and he, he gave me the courage. They ignore him. You know, he doesn't know what the fuck he's talking about. He's just, a head, you know, in his head, intellectual. And uh, and you have my permission to do what you're doing. So fuck everyone else. He's not your teacher. Tell him to fuck off. Right? That's pretty much what my mom said. Don't worry about him. Um, so, so... It was, it was a, I bring this experience up often because it was actually, it catalyzed a, pr- a profound healing and again, reclamation for me to, to be f- confronted with white male supremacy in my face, telling me that my life work was not valid because it didn't show up in the way that he determined was correct. He was the one making the rules. Disregard my 13 years of expertise, disregard my own sexual healing and awakening and the fact that I'm actually a functional human being using these methods. Like total, like I'm going to disregard that because I've got a white man in my face telling me that what I'm doing is wrong. So moving through that, that experience was actually profoundly transformational because, and it was right after my mom died. So I remember like my mama, in, a white woman, but <laughs> I hoped I walked her through her death and it was like such a, a, words don't describe it. It was the most sacred experience of my life, walking my mom through her death. And at the same time that this was coming down from this dude, I just heard my mama in my heart like, fuck him. Like, how dare he try to steal from you everything that you've done? to survive and to build a life, not just for myself, but for our entire community. You know, I've trained hundreds of people who've gone through tremendous healing using these methods. And how dare he tell me that my worth, that my life's work is not valuable because he doesn't understand it. So it was very healing and it was very transformational. And so where I'm at now is you won't fool me again. I see you and you won't ever fool me again with that white male patriarchal bullshit and trying to tell me that my 
the wisdom of my body, the wisdom of my bones and the wisdom of my Lama, who's given me permission to do this. Like you won't fool me again into disbelieving myself, doubting myself. <laughs> yeah. Beautiful. Well, this is, again, this is where it's so empowering. Again, these, these lessons that show up and they appear at first glance to be like disempowering or another victimization. But when you really like dive into it and dig into it, like, wow, that's some, that's powerful. Like, yep. Again, right? Yep. The, the poison became a source of power. Yes. Yeah. And recognizing so, it, recognizing it is such a big thing as we spoke about earlier. It's like once you recognize it and you see it, then it's like, nah, like you fooled me once. You're not going to fool me twice. The you know? spell was broken. The spell was yeah. Broken. I think that, you know, the spell of like the white male academic is the only, is the sole source of authority. That's the spell that was broken. Because the other thing I, you know, that I find curious about these guys is like, well, what does your sex life look like? Right. <laughs> Are, are you able to orgasm without ejaculating? How long do you last in bed? Are you jacking off to porn every night and coming in two seconds? Like for some of them, the answer is yes. Oh yeah, for sure. Well, again, that's a very, that goes back to this thing of like, you know, an empowered woman period is threatening. You know, it's this, an empowered woman, a woman, because there's something about a woman in her, like in her sexual power, in her, you know, it's funny. I was thinking about it yesterday. I don't know if you know who, do you know who Soleil is? She's like, um, I'll send you her if you don't. She was like an R&B star like 20 years ago, but then she like had a family and now she's come back again, but she's a total tantric bikini black woman. She's married to one of the guys from Public Enemy and she's just like, she gave this talk and she was like, like, um, she was just like, but she's so in her power and she's in her forties now too, maybe even approaching fifties, but she's still young and beautiful, but she's so empowered. And I was like, yes, like I want to see more women like this. Cause there really is something about a woman in that age range too. You know, there's something, and it's interesting how, again, the white supremacist society glorifies all these 19 and 20 year olds, but that's not actually where human beings are in their power. We come into our mastery, like in the, you know, late thirties, forties, even fifties and beyond, you know, this is where, cause we should be, again, we, should be if we're running our energy correctly we should be actually gathering power with every year you know with the exception of you know at the very end of our life we'll start to decline but we should yeah. still be gathering power and coming into our mastery which is what you know they don't want that so um yeah <laughs> exactly and, and the big question is always who are these they and how do we kick them off our planet <laughs> <laughs> who, are they? Who, who are they anyway this is we love about i love about this all the time too i'm like it's they like who are they that we're coming for you hey they <laughs> who are they <laughs> but again back to the, the piece about consciousness and what it sometimes comes back to for me is again it's back to this consciousness piece and again once enough people reach a certain level of consciousness which there's so many different ways to get through your know, meditation pleasure all of these different ways when enough of us reach a certain point then whoever they are it's like they're not going to have power anymore because so many people will see that where we've been giving the power away and again we did this because we were trained to do it that way but then once you see it and you break out of it and you break that cycle then we start a whole new civilization of people who are like switched on you know and when you're switched on you can't really you can't really be controlled anymore like that right well and what you just I, I love that you just said that because this that what you just described is exactly how individual healing heals the collective it's the hundredth monkey thing. I just got that. I hadn't, I'm like, well, how does all this individual, but exactly when enough of us have broken the spell and broken free from the illusion, it creates a shift, a, a shift in the mass consciousness of this planet. So our individual personal healing is directly tied and essential to the healing of the collective. Yeah, it is. Absolutely. And, you know, sexual energy, as you know better than anyone, is so powerful. And I often think that this is why they've woven all of this, um, you know, making us feel ashamed and telling us that it's wrong. And all of this is because there is so much power in that. Like, it literally can create life. This is how life is literally created. Exactly. I talk about this. I like it is such a mind trip when you think that your orgasm creates a fucking human being and that the human being is the only pathway to Buddhahood. Like you don't get to be a Buddha without being a human, right? So being a human is the most precious thing we can ever be. And our orgasms create other fucking humans. Like why people are not like floored with the miraculousness of that because I am every time like wow and you, you have a baby so you know this <laughs> yeah oh I do and I still 
it's like this crazy thing where I look at him and I'm like, did that really happen? Like I was there, I experienced this whole thing of giving birth, but it, and before I gave birth, I was blessed to be at two other births and I was blown away every time. And my midwife and doula friends, they actually say the same thing. They're also blown away every time. Like it's the miracle of life. And yes, it is this, you know, and, and, you know, it is this experience of sexuality that is what leads to the creation of life. This is how we all got here. And yet we're, we're being taught that this is all wrong and it's sinful and somehow and then at the same time they are slamming us with all of this basically pornography toxic depictions of sexuality through media like any kid can just go on youtube and see basically like softcore porn in a music video and then all the while they're telling us like oh it's wrong it's wrong like it's these people are psychopaths well it's, it creates cognitive dissonance which creates neurosis Right, so we have a society of of mentally ill. We're as as our society socially, we're 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 ill in relationship to our sexuality because it creates a cognitive dissonance there. Those those mixed messages, those opposing messages, and you're absolutely correct. The well, the images that we're seeing, that we're allowed to see, are examples of toxic sexual expression. They're not healthy. They're not loving. They're not rooted in love and compassion and loving kindness and growth and and communication and mutual respect and mutual honor. It's rooted in capitalism and then objectification and and brutality and and fucking sociopathy. <laughs> Yeah. And humanity, that's what we're allowed to see. And I, God, I remember I was doing this um, uh, online Tantra video program like 10 years ago. And we're, we were trying to put like our, our promo videos on YouTube. And one of the promo videos was there was no nudity. It was literally just me and my partner at the time looking into each other's eyes with his hand on my heart. And, you know, I think I, like I was covered or whatever. So there was no nudity, but it was really, it was just a really intimate shot. And they banned it. And yet next to the video is like a woman sticking a banana in her butt or something like that. Like it, it was just such a clear, like I honestly believe that it's, it's like a demonic influence on this planet in, in relationship to so much of life, but particularly sexuality. Intimacy was banned, but pornography, like unhealthy pornography, you know, whatever, shitty pornography, bad, detrimental pornography was celebrated, was allowed for free on YouTube. But people looking into each other's eyes and communicating in a healthy, constructive way is, is, was, was banned, was not allowed. So it's just mind-boggling. And, and it's not when we understand what's really going on, but like the fact that it's going on is what's mind-boggling to me. Like, why would you want to do that even? Like, what is the payoff? What is the payoff with causing people suffering? Well, it goes goes back to these, I mean, for me, it just always goes back to like, these people can't be, they're just not like us. Like, we're just not the same kind of people. Or are they even people? Because we would never even do that. Like right off the bat, we're like, oh, if we had $600 billion right now, we would go, we would probably figure out real quick how to like eradicate hunger, educate everybody. Like we would do it just like that. We would figure out a way to do it. But they don't think this way. They're, it's all about prolonging suffering and um, yeah, control and all this kind of stuff. And I just, keep coming back to like, I don't know, and there's theories about this, like, again, you can't prove them, but that these people are not human, that they are some kind of, they're from another planet or they're another species. And you kind of, it kind of makes sense after a while because they're, again, humans are not always evolved, but I would say for the most part, even I'm always usually able to find that place in most people where you can find their humanity, even like, you know, with somebody who may disagree with me on certain things, I can still get to a place where I can see they actually love their family. They wish the best for everybody. Like most people at their core are, are somewhere navigating around that but these people are are not and then even and it's, again it's like a virus because even people who um, might start out good and then they get into the system and then all of a sudden you see they're you know like our wonderful prime minister I'm on the strip right now I'm like can we fire this guy like honestly like I've just I've just had enough of him like I've just enough like I, I just read you know like he's still taking indigenous children to court as of Monday you know even after all of this discovery it's like just stop already like just you know yeah. it's yeah it's just like these people are the system. Yeah, inhumane systems, absolutely inhumane yeah. systems, and it's and it's an interesting perspective. Like in the um, uh, there's a there's a, a tradition within Tibetan Buddhism called the Gokpa tradition, which are uh, lamas that are householders and have families, and they you know have relationships. And the basic tenet of this is that human nature is fundamentally good. So, which is in contrast to many other traditions, monastic traditions, Christian traditions, whatever, which believe that, that human nature is inherently bad and must be overcome, 
But in this specific spiritual tradition, it's like as a human, your basic human blueprint is love. It is compassion. It is, go- it is goodness. That is what it is to be human, is to be beneficial and benevolent inherently. So that ties to what you were just saying is like the ba- if we accept that the basic human design is positive, is love, is regenerative, then what happens when that's not being manifested? My belief in many cases is trauma, right? That having lived through that experience of my life, uh, trauma not transformed is transferred. So a lot of the abuse and the violence that I think we see on this planet is a manifestation of overwhelming trauma. This planet, the planet itself is traumatized. The humans are traumatized. The animals are traumatized. The spirits are traumatized. Nature, everybody's fucking traumatized. (laughs) Everyone's traumatized and they just need to have a lot of orgasms to make it better. Yeah, there there we go. Hey, yes. (laughs) You can, you can make that and make that a little fancier and you can make sure that say that. Planets traumatized come for a better life. <laughs> come for peace. Back. Come for healing. Yeah, come for healing. Yes. Yeah, come for healing. <laughs> but yeah. Oh okay. my goodness. Yeah, but there's so much. So so please tell everybody a little bit more about like where they can find you. And I know um, just before we go here, like I'm just I know that you were recently invited to go and you had a big opportunity and you had a big you were on a big TV show and you're seen by millions of people, I think. Tell us a little bit about that. I know that was so great. So I have the one wonderful honor and privilege of being featured on Love and Hip Hop Couples Retreat uh, on VH1. Um, And I was on the May 24th episode. I think that was Memorial Day, Monday. Um, And so I got to lead this group of, uh, they were the stars uh, of the show. I got to lead this group of couples through um, some tantric practices for enhancing intimacy. And it was amazing, beautiful, the honor of my life. So grateful that I busted through and (laughs) all my obstacles as we were discussing before and was able to uh, have that experience. But you can probably see the episode uh, if you've got cable. I think you can stream it on somewhere. Just Google Love and Hip Hop Couples Retreat. But they also have it on YouTube. I'm pretty sure the, the episode's on YouTube. Well. So and did you bring, and, and the big question, my burning question is, did you bring the rubber vagina? I did! And Yes, and of course they didn't show that in the shots, right? But they were very interested in my rubber vulvas and my rubber lingam. So, like, when I was on the set, right, we had them on a silver platter next to me, and they were just, like, all tripping out. They were like, oh, we're, like, we've got a shot through this forest of dildos. <laughs> like, we're never going to be able to show this on TV, but, but they loved it. Did you it. go through customs? What, what happens when you go through customs and they open your suitcase and it's full of, like, rubber vulvas and dildos? And they're like, so what are you doing? I don't know. What? What? what I don't know. I don't remember. I don't. Did I get get? I you must know. have packed your suitcase. I know. How did I skate through customs without the rubber vulvas? I don't know. Maybe they just didn't stop me. They just, you know, whatever. They do the the X ray thing, and they're like, yeah, whatever. You're like, oh, whatever. Just another lady with a suitcase full. Of, yeah. Just for anyone who doesn't know, legitimately, when she teaches, she carry. You know, you have this oh, like. Liter- I'll show you. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, it's a literal, um, she's going to, it's so exciting. It's a literal rubber vagina. Oh, here we go. These are my, these are my new clitorises that I just got. And this one's really cool because it shows you the, let's see if I can do it. Ah, oh, I can't get it out. Anyway, you can see the clitoris and then you can see the vulva. So you get to see how the clitoris actually rests inside the body and surrounds the vaginal opening in the urethra. So that's a pretty cool thing that I just recently got, but I'll, I'll pull out the model for you, the actual vulva. All right. Oh, she's prepared. She's ready here. You know what I always just learned recently, which I, I was reminded of, is that the, the clitoris bone looks like a wishing bone. Yeah. Yeah. yeah well, see, it's actually the erectile tissue. So it's not a bone. Oh. It's, it's um, so hold on, I'll put my vulva down. So this is... <laughs> So this is the internal clitoris. So we have what you what you can see and touch with your with your finger and your naked eye are the shaft and the glands. You can see it looks like a tiny penis. So Mm. this is what's visible externally, kind of like it's showing you on this thing. The little glands is poking through. But you can feel if you take your finger, you can like feel the shaft. And then inside the body, it kind of splits like a like you said, like a wishbone. But this is all erectile tissue. It's the same erectile tissue that makes up the penis. Oh, and then there's these little bulbs of erectile tissue which attach to the legs and the bulbs are like the root of the penis. So it's all, there's two different kinds of erectile tissue. There's the corpus cavernosa, which is what makes up the legs and the shaft. And then there's corpus spongiosum, which is what makes up the bulbs and then the glands of the clitoris. Fancy. Mm-hmm. And then here's my vulva. 
Because when I teach sex techniques, I usually put it on my chest here. And like I teach vulva massage, like solo tantric masturbation. And I, <laughs> this is how I do it. <laughs> this is how we do it. <laughs> You need to make a reel on Instagram with that song and like with your like massaging. This is how we do it. <laughs> this is how we do it. It's Friday night. <laughs> I got my rubber vulva. <laughs> feeling tight. Oh my God. <laughs> I'm feeling all right. <laughs> Love it. That's right. So you do the, you do the soundtrack and I'll do the... <laughs> I'll do the soundtrack. Yeah, we'll make the we'll make the comfort. What, no, what was the shirt again? We I forgot already. Uh, something about comfort, comfort, world peace, or something. Yeah, comfort, like. world peace. The world, is, the world is traumatized. Comfort, world peace. Yeah, comfort, world peace. Comfort healing. Oh, Davy, <laughs> you're the greatest. Okay, tell everybody where where can they find you? Yeah. So if you still actually want to know me after all this. <laughs> <laughs> you can find me at authentictantra.com. That's my school, the Institute of Authentic Tantra Education. So if you're interested in becoming a tantrika in uh, the Tibetan Five Element uh, Healing Methods, um, then that's where you want to go, authentictantra.com. If you want to just know about me, my website is davywordtantra.com. And we have all kinds of wonderful free offerings on both sites. So if you want to stay connected then hear our crazy stuff then <laughs> you can do so <laughs> yeah but this is just it isn't it it's like this is it it's the joy it's the humor it's the this is what we're meant to be we're meant to be and this is part of the all connected to the sexual energy and all of it like we should be bubbling over with life and pleasure and fun and giggling and laughing like that's what we're meant to be and no matter what's going on you know we can we can learn to navigate through like you know driving through a blizzard to get on a plane like all of these things you know life is happening joyful. Hmm? Yeah. It, all of these things can be joyful yes we can yeah. find a way to like infuse them all with joy and congratulations by the way on having the first um acc- officially accredited i forget what you said at the beginning already here's me yeah, again but yeah most accredited school for tantric sexual healing incredible yeah in the world so yeah we can't down on canada for everything they they, they accredited your school that's incredible i love canada i'm just saying there's some it's better than the united states yeah, I'll say that. Like, it has its issues, and I'm here to help with those issues. But let me tell you, I feel like I... So my, my great-grandmother, one little thing, uh, my great-grandmother times five was one of the founders of the Underground Railroad in Adrian, Michigan. Mm. So I very often, when I got my permanent residency, it was like fulfilling her, you know, her, her mission in life. Wow. Uh, is to, to get to safety, because it's not safe in the United States. <laughs> yeah, you know, I look at my son and I think that all the time. And I even actually just this morning, I was thinking about him and I was like, wow, because, you know, his dad was kind of on this consciousness journey and went on this trip. But, you know, he was working and, and festival hopping. And that's how he met me because I was singing at a festival that he was at. And then my child, you know, our child is the is the product of that. And now here my son is up here in Canada and he's safe. And I'm like, I look at him so many times and I'm like, he's literally his ancestors wildest dreams. Like, yeah. who would have thought that, you know, and and you know you were talking about like so my son's aunt um is about uh, like our age probably about your age actually and she went to the last segregated school in texas even in this generation so this is not far off like this is a woman i'm pretty sure she's actually born in 1974 like you are and so in her lifetime you know she went to a segregated school in texas so this is not um i think the last residential school closed in i should know this again 96 that's what i was just gonna say i was like was it really 96 because i just read this so this is not um yeah this is this is not old news years ago get over it no, it is not. And it's, well, and as we know, it still happens to this day in so many in- forms. So we're all here to do our part in, you know, and yours is to help people have more fun and pleasure while doing it. And, and have orgasms for world peace. <laughs> or- <laughs> orgasms for world peace. I'm down. <laughs> Davey, thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, it's such a pleasure. Oh, Davey Ward, everyone. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> You've been listening to A Voice for Love. This is Surya Devi. You can find me at suryadeviworld.com. Thank you so much for tuning in. I hope this series inspires you to discover your own voice for love so you can use it to be a force for good in your life and in the world. I wish you great joy, good health, and the courage to speak up for what you believe in. Peace.